0: Welcome to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Audio Blog, where we strive to share an authentic interpretation of Mason's life work. We thank you for joining us and hope you enjoy the program. Scouting, The Joy of Discovery by Brittany McGann, recorded live at the 2022 Living Education Retreat. My journey with scouting started after a move. Uh, We left our established Charlotte Mason group and we moved about an hour away so, while we would still drive, you know, a couple times a month to see that group, uh, we were lonely, and we missed having friends close by. So, uh, what I do when I'm lonely is I start groups. <laughs> and I decided that scouting would be perfect for that. Uh, I had um, seen, you know, the Charlotte Mason and scouting connection a few years before, but I hadn't really had the time to delve into it. So, I bought Scouting for Boys, which is a, a book by um, Sir Robert Baden. And uh, I bought it and I read it. And once I read it, I knew that uh, I needed to learn a whole lot of things. And I I knew that it would be a great thing to share with uh, with my children and with other children nearby. So uh, we just completed our fourth year of that group. And it, it was really my pleasure to witness how it affected the children and how much they loved learning new things and how excited they were to get deeper into nature and to learn new skills and um, to kind of grow into, them, into themselves and be sort of bursting out with this excitement of all these wonderful things that they were learning. So today, what we're going to focus on is this uh, path of discovery, discovering joy in scouting. We're gonna talk about three particular areas, the joy of God in his creation, joy in our neighbors, Enjoy joy in our duty and place in the world. So first, uh, I want to take a moment to think about, when we hear this word, discovery, you know, what do we usually think of? I know for me, I always thought of big ideas, you know, uh, new species of plants or animals, things that were important that would be world-changing, things that experts did. Uh, or maybe, you know, we've all read Little House, Back, you know, a couple hundred years ago, you could discover new lands, and now we can't really do those kinds of things. So for me to sort of get some of that feeling of discovery, I thought I would have to have a different environment. Uh, I always loved all things Old West. Uh, My family uh, is from southern Texas. They're vaqueros, which is Mexican cowboys. And so my, my grandparents had been there for generations, and then they moved to California. But I always loved the history, I loved the stories of the ranch, and I loved spending time with my grandparents. They lived on five acres in the middle of the California desert, and where they lived, it felt exciting. They had chickens and goats and cows. It was dangerous. We could hear coyotes out in the distance. We lifted rocks and we found scorpions and tarantulas. We tried to ride the dogs, (laughs) we caught butterflies and lizards, and we, we claimed our own little special places on their parcel of land. And out there, it felt like discovery was possible. But my grandmother had died by the time I was about 12, and they sold the property. And, you know, I grew up a single parent in the suburbs, But I still wanted that, I wanted to capture that that feeling of excitement and discovery. So in my teens, uh, I had a plan. My plan was that I would go to college so that I could become a teacher, so that I could move to Montana and marry a cowboy. (laughs) As you can imagine, my plan was not God's plan for my life. I did not become a teacher. I married a man who is not a cowboy, and we moved to North Carolina, not Montana. Uh, It was at this point in moving to North Carolina that I experienced a total change of atmosphere, and I started to shift my thoughts on the requirements necessary for discovery. In ourselves, Mason tells us about eyes and no eyes. She wrote, do you know how eyes and no eyes went out for a walk? No eyes found it dull and said there was nothing to see but Eyes saw a hundred interesting things and brought home his handkerchief full of treasures. The people I know are all either Eyes or No Eyes. Do you wish to know which class you fall into? Because I didn't have before me what I most preferred in the suburbs of Southern California, I had become No Eyes. I had closed off my sight from what was before me, looking for an ideal that I imagined in the future. Looking back now, I wonder what I missed. What wildflowers did I walk past? What birds and butterflies did I not notice? So Mason has an exercise, and we're going to try this one. She says, let me ask you two or three questions. If you can answer them, we shall call you eyes. If you cannot, I learned to answer these and a thousand questions like them. So if everyone would just close your eyes for a minute. So I want you to raise your hand if you can um, see in your mind the sign that is to my left, to your right. So you think you, you know what it says, and you think you can describe it in, in detail? Okay, go ahead and open your eyes and see if you're right. Okay, we've got a couple more questions, um, and these ones are directly from Mason. Uh, can you name a tree, not a shrub, that has green leaf buds? Just raise your hand. Okay, do you know any birds with white tail feathers? So a few. It's hard, right? <laughs> these are little details that we can notice, and you know, cumulatively, we gain this kind of knowledge. Okay, so let's go back to that word discovery. When we're thinking about the kind of discovery that we want to instill in our children, we're not talking about these big, you know, history-making revelations, and we're not talking about life-altering discoveries. We're talking about a habit of intentionally seeking knowledge or understanding, anything that is new to the seeker. Again, Mason illustrates this point well, and many of you will know this quote. The flowers, it is true, are not new, but the children are. And it is the fault of their elders if every new flower they come upon is not to them a mystery of beauty to be watched from day to day, with unspeakable awe and delight. As the elders, that's us, we need to cultivate in our children a habit and a hunger to discover. Discovery is not passive. Whether the discovery is made during the course of an unrelated activity, like finding a bird's nest when you're climbing a tree, or it's an activity where something is intentionally sought out, like going on a caterpillar hunt, Discovery always requires action, and it requires work. So now we have a good foundation of discovery, but we're also talking about joy. And I think Nancy did an excellent job of describing what joy is. So I would just add one other thing, that joy is a posture of the heart in the same way that gratitude is. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18 ties them together in this way. Rejoice always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Jesus Christ. So to be joyful is also active. It's a habit. We Charlotte Mason enthusiasts love habits, and habits form the posture of our hearts. So as we move forward to our three areas of discussion, joy in God through his creation, joy in knowing and serving others, and joy in doing our duty well, I hope that you will also see how the philosophy behind scouting develops habits that are consistent with a Christian worldview, and it has the potential to form character in our children. So we'll begin uh, with a discovery of joy in God through his creation. The first area of skill that scouts need to learn is that of observation. Before we can appreciate what God has made, we first need to notice what he has made. So would you say that our culture generally is no eyes or eyes? Probably no eyes. I would say no eyes is mostly what we have. Uh, We live in a fast-paced, concrete, indoor, air-conditioned kind of culture. In our modern lives, it is very possible to have no connection to the natural world at all. Technology has made us comfortable and kept us very well entertained, So we can miss general revelation altogether. Our children have a natural curiosity, but we often snuff it out. So think back about uh, the last time you went on a walk with like a two- or three-year-old. Every three or four steps, they find something. And most of the time, it's a stick, or like a rock. A rock like the 10,000 other rocks on your gravel driveway. And how do we respond to them? We say, put it down. Let's go. (laughs) Yeah, we're not taking another one in the house. (laughs) We were taught to hurry. We were taught that rocks and sticks are dirty, bugs are gross, and that there are ticks lurking on every blade of grass. (laughs) So after a while, our attitude sinks into our children. But scouting can change that. Scouting begins by methodically training our observation skills. Observation is the foundation that all other skills are built upon. So whether you are a city girl who struggles with every insect that flies your direction, or you are a crunchy mom who has raised your kids to be barefoot tree climbers that eat weeds, we can all strengthen our observation muscles by using them. Nature study is the primary vehicle of this training, As Mason suggests, many of you have probably followed a tree through the seasons, watching the colors change, watching the leaf buds and the flowers come out in the springtime. You've probably all done some nature journaling and learned the habits of the birds that come into your yard. Scouting gets to the why and the what for, taking these observations further. So first we observe, and then we interpret these observations. Has anybody ever found a newborn fawn? Yeah. It's cool. We found one. So I'm going to go over kind of how we uh, observed it and then some of the observations that we made as we observed. So this was a couple years ago. We found um, a little newborn fawn just curled up tight in some tall grass at the edge of the forest by our house. So we noticed that she was very small. So she was very young. She was newborn. She was alone in the daytime. So probably, she was too little to be able to keep up with her mother, walking through, foraging for food. She was in tall grass, so she wouldn't be seen from a distance. And her spots mimicked the pattern of the leaf shadows on the forest floor, so she was well camouflaged. As believers, we see these things, and rather than credit them to millions of years of random processes coming together, We see in them purpose. We see how God has provided for the fawn a natural nursery to keep her safe as she grows strong. We understand that deer are not humans, and while we would not leave our babies alone, for the deer, the mother is doing the best she can for the baby, leaving her safe while she goes out to forage for food to make milk to feed her baby. It shocks me, honestly, how many Christians never look around them nature itself was given to mankind to steward and have dominion over. Repeatedly, the Bible draws our attention to nature, either to help us understand an attribute of God or to learn a lesson. So not only do we shirk our duty, but we miss out on depth of understanding when we don't look at the world around us. A Christian may read Psalm 19.1, The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork and he will agree that the sky is beautiful. He loves sunrises and sunsets. He might see the occasional shooting star or marvel at the full moon. And these are lovely, wonderful things, but there is so much more. In scouting, we learn to name the phases of the moon. We learn to search the sky for constellations that change depending on the season. And using the shadows made by the sun, we learn how to tell direction. Scouting encourages intimacy with nature, and when God gets the glory, it can deepen our relationship with Him. But the natural world is not all beauty. The more you observe nature, the more likely you're going to see suffering and death. And sometimes we want to shield our children from this, but we shouldn't and we can't. Once I was at a zoo with my husband, uh, before we had children, and we were watching a hawk, who had just been fed, he was eating a white rabbit or a white rat, and a man, cried out in horror and disgust, shielded his daughter's eyes, and he was angry that they would feed the hawk during zoo hours. (laughs) So our focus is joy, though. How does the mention of death support joy? Understanding death helps us to have reverence for life. Culturally, we've forgotten the value of life and the seriousness of death. This is how a society who doesn't know where its food comes from can fight to save bald eagle eggs and consider it a right to kill a living child in its mother's womb. As Christians, we should see things differently, but we can be just as bad. One of my friends recently, uh, her son, was being treated for leukemia, And um, if you know anything about leukemia, there are two kinds. And one kind is much more serious, and that is what her son had. And the chances of him dying at nine years old were very high. So she had moved uh, about one month before his diagnosis. So She had no community where she had moved to. And they spent a long time in treatment. But as they were trying to uh, get out into the community and, and meet new people, and she would meet these friends at church, and tell them about her son. They would just get weird. They would shut down. Some of them, she said, even just walked away from her. Some of her old friends did the same thing. She noticed that after a while, people just kind of fell off and stopped talking to her. They didn't know what to say. They didn't know how to respond because we have just shut out death so completely from our everyday lives. And because of that, we've forgotten how to value life. We've lost perspective. As Christians, we especially can't shy away from death or shield our children from it, even though it's hard and it's ugly, but it's the reality of our fallen world, and it should point us back to God and the hope that we have in him. The more we discover about the natural world, beautiful and terrible, the more we should be in awe of who God is and what he has done and what he still does for us. We should marvel at the awesomeness of God, because our hope is not in this world. The study of nature should inspire in us the same feelings David expressed in Psalm 8. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth, who have set your glory above the heavens. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him? and the Son of Man, that you visit him. For you have made him a little lower than the angels, and you have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made him to have dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, even the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, and the fish of the sea that pass through the paths of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how excellent is your name in all the earth. So first, we teach our children to discover joy in creation, and then we teach them the joy of discovering their place of serving others in the community. Humans are made for community. And until very recently, community meant the people around you, the people living nearest to you. We had larger families, and we grew up with grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins. We knew our neighbors going back for generations but now we live with an illusion of independence. We can choose and make our own communities. Technology has freed us from the limitations of place, and it has allowed us to see community from a consumer's perspective. We choose where we live based on what kind of house we want. We have cars, so we can drive to church as far as we want to go, and we can choose our church based on the amenities that are offered at church. Using the internet, we can find people who share our interests and our homeschool philosophy. <laughs> and anytime we get tired of where we live, or the job we have, or the church we go to, we can just move on to new ones. And while there are wonderful benefits of that, and this retreat is a wonderful benefit of that, there's also a cost, and things have been lost. A study from the Institute of Family Studies from April of this year found that Gen Z, which was born between 1997 and 2012, is the loneliest generation so far. Millennials and Gen X are not that far behind. According to the study, baby boomers who felt lonely every day were 5%, compared to 8% in Generation X, 11% for Millennials, and 12% for Gen Z. 8% of baby boomers felt lonely a couple of times a week, compared to 13% for Generation X, 16% for millennials, and 16% for Gen Z. So for Gen Z, which is where many of our children are, that's 28% of them feel lonely daily or multiple times in a week. So if this isn't affecting our kids directly, it affects their friends. Without community, people are lost. We're untethered and unsure of our place in the world. I moved a lot when I was a kid, so I didn't have friends for more than two years in a row. Uh, I always changed schools. And I grew up poor, not like hand-me-downs kind of poor. It was like get cans at the beach to collect money for recycle, to get food kind of poor. So, uh, one summer, we were actually technically homeless. Uh, My mom worked for the government, and she was furloughed, so they don't pay you when you're furloughed. And uh, we lost our apartment. So my siblings and I went to go live uh, with a relative that we didn't care for very much. And my mom went to stay with a friend so that she could earn enough money so we could get an apartment again. And during that time, I changed schools three times in one year. I started off with a relative, And then my mom got us an apartment, and so I went back with my mom. I went to my old school, and I was really happy. Uh, And then she was going through a divorce as well. I had to leave that school and went to a third school. And by the third school, I was done. So after my mom would leave for work, I would just not go to school. I'd just skip the bus. But I was resourceful. We had phone books back then. And uh, I looked up in the phone book about homeschooling. And I made some calls. <laughs> and I figured out that I could homeschool myself for the rest of the year. I made a case to my mom, and she let me do it. So it turned out great. <laughs> and then we had moved again before eighth grade. And you know I made friends in the summer, stayed at the same place for a couple years. It was fine. Uh, but at that point... That was the most extreme of, like, my new-girl experiences. And uh, I hated it. I hated not knowing anyone. I hated not knowing where things were and feeling awkward and aimless. But eventually, I learned that the easiest way to, to get over this feeling of awkwardness and to find my place in a new community was to volunteer for some kind of work and make friends that way. And this is exactly what scouting teaches to go out into the world to serve others and seek out real friendships, not only with peers, but with everyone they encounter in the world. In his book, Scouting for Boys, Sir Robert Baden Powell explains the laws of the Scout. These laws, if implemented, teach the Scout how to live in community. So I'm going to go over them. Uh, There are five that I list. I'll go over them once, and then we'll go back through and revisit each one. So first, The scout's duty is to be useful and help others. Second, a scout is a friend to all and a brother to every other scout, no matter to what social class the other belongs. A scout must never be a snob. A snob is one who looks down upon another because he is poor or who is poor and resents the other because he is rich. A scout accepts the other man as he finds him and makes the best of him. The third rule, a scout is courteous. That is, he is polite to all, and he must not take any reward for being helpful or courteous. Number four, a scout obeys orders of his patrol leader or scoutmaster without question. Even if he gets an order he does not like, he must do as soldiers and sailors do. He must carry it out all the same because it is his duty. And after he has done it, he can come and state any reasons against it, but he must carry out the order at once. That is discipline. Final one, number five, the scout smiles and whistles through all circumstances. When he gets an order, he should obey it cheerily and readily, not in a slow, hangdog sort of way. Okay, so we'll examine the first law. The scout's duty is to be useful and help others. I mentioned earlier that observation is the foundation of scouting. In order to be useful, a scout needs to always be paying attention to what is going on around him. His focus, therefore, is not on himself. Powell describes the skill like this. If you go out with a really well-trained scout, you will see that his eyes are constantly moving, looking out in every direction, near and far, noticing everything that is going on, just from habit, not because he wants to show off how much he notices. Early in my homeschooling career, I went down many rabbit holes. I came upon George Washington's Rules of Civility. These were a list of rules that George Washington copied when he was about 14 years old, and the first time I read it, there was one rule that stood out to me in particular. This was rule number 29. When you meet one of greater quality than yourself, stop and retire especially if it be at a door or any straight place to give way for him to pass. Of course, this is simply referring to allowing someone else the right-of-way. But the thing that stood out to me was this idea of someone of greater quality than yourself. It reminds me of Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others as better than himself. Let each of you look not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. We live in an especially self-focused culture. Self-care, self-love, selfies are part of the cultural norm for our children's generation. But a scout is taught the Christian principle to look to the needs of others, not to put himself first, but to actively and constantly Be on the lookout for how he can be of service. Rule number two. A scout is a friend to all and a brother to every other scout, no matter what social class the other belongs. A scout must never be a snob. A snob is one who looks down upon another because he is poor or who is poor and resents the other because he is rich. A scout accepts the other man as he finds him and makes the best of him. And again, this reminds me of a Bible verse. Galatians 3.28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. In scouting, as in the church, it doesn't matter what you come from, who your parents are, or how much money you have. There is an ideological bond that makes everyone of equal value. And I love that he elaborates on not being a snob. Not only does a snob look down on others, a snob thinks very highly of himself. A snob will point to himself as a standard bearer, the one who represents what is best or right or true to the humiliation of others. To be a snob is prideful, and pride is not limited to those who are rich or those who are recognized as privileged. Rule three, a scout is courteous that is, he is polite to all, and he must not take any reward for being helpful or courteous." So this is the opposite of being a snob. I told you guys that I have been the new girl many, many times in my life, and I always hated it, and I still hate it. (laughs) So when we moved again my junior year of high school, I had already been to two schools, freshman and sophomore year, um, and I was socially over it.
1: So I decided that I wasn't going
0: to bother making friends because I was almost done. And uh, what I decided to do was go to the library at lunch and I would just read a book. But after a while, some of the nerdy boys in my classes noticed what I was doing. And so they would come up to me and ask me questions about homework or ask me about my book. And then they would just keep coming over and chat for a while. So after a while, I gave up. I started to sit with them. (laughs) I started to hang out with them and had a lot of fun. They were super nerdy, but that made them really fun, uh, really cool to hang out with, and um, it, it actually got me through those last couple years of high school. It made it bearable for me. So their kindness in seeing me and coming to talk to me, their tenacity in doing it every day, even though I tried to ignore them, That kindness is what helped me to get through that last little bit of high school. When we count others as better than ourselves, kindness and courtesy are then the natural outcome, and it becomes a habit to treat others well. And then this last part of that rule, and he must not take any reward for being helpful and courteous, that's noteworthy. Courtesy is so rare now that it actually stands out. It should be the standard, but it isn't. So while it can seem like a reward for courtesy is good, it just reinforces the behavior to do it only for the sake of a reward. So I think what is better is to realize that we want to create a mindset and a habit of courtesy, and a better reinforcement is actually that as character is built, good character is noticed, and then that leads to opportunities. For example, my middle daughter, who is 11, she loves to play with one of the toddlers at church. And we get to church about an hour earlier than everyone else since I worked there. So she plays um, with this little boy who is the son of the youth pastor. And his mom was you know, so happy that she plays with him so well that she actually asked my daughter if she would be a mother's helper through the summer, and that is a paying job. So, Her good character was noticed, you know, her cheerfulness and kindness were noticed, and then that brings in its own reward of a job for her. So if we discourage um, the tit-for-tat kind of a reward system, but encourage the good character, then we will see and our children will also see that that has its own kind of rewards and opportunities. Number four, a scout obeys orders of his patrol leader or scoutmaster without question. And even if he gets an order he does not like, he must do it as soldiers and sailors do. He must carry it out all the same because it is his duty. And after he has done it, he can come and state any reasons against it. But he must carry out the order at once. That is discipline. I know that some people have a problem with the phrasing, obey without question. In order for this to work, there needs to be an established trust between the Scout and the Scoutmaster, and most of the time, this is you, the parent, you're the Scoutmaster. But this is necessary for reasons of safety and for maintaining order. In my experience as the Scoutmaster of my little group, most of the time, it's things like, don't touch that, don't get ahead of me on the trail, don't light your fires until there's an adult with you. So it's for safety. Uh, And then in the context of uh, Sir Robert Baden-Powell's book, it probably would have referred mostly to um, camping or working on service projects. So again, for safety and then also for discipline to keep order. But just as your child should not obey you if it causes him to sin, also we would not expect our children to obey a scoutmaster or any adult in authority if it causes him to sin. But when the dynamics of a relationship are such that one has authority and one is under-authority. It's the duty of the one under authority to obey. As in Ephesians 6.4, right after children are told to obey their parents, fathers are told, do not provoke your children to anger. So there needs to be reasonable expectations on both sides. And this is consistent with Charlotte Mason and her understanding of obedience. From home education, she says, First and infinitely, the most important, is the habit of obedience. Indeed, obedience is the whole duty of the child. And for this reason, every other duty of the child is fulfilled as a matter of obedience to his parents. Not only so, obedience is the whole duty of man, obedience to conscience, to law, to divine direction. It should also be noted in this rule that um, Powell makes allowances for grievances, too, though only after the job is done. And this would be a helpful rule to have in our families. You can tell me why you don't like doing it after you've done it. Okay, so our final rule, the scout smiles and whistles through all circumstances. When he gets an order, he should obey it cheerily and readily, not in a slow, hangdog sort of way. To be cheerful is a habit, a good habit. Our cultures become so focused on feelings that people sometimes think that to behave in a cheerful manner when they're not feeling cheerful is to be inauthentic. But what's the alternative? When I was a hairdresser, I had a few clients who were extremely negative. Every time they would come in, they would complain about their hair, but they kept coming back. <laughs> And then through the course of our time together, they would just complain about every person that had annoyed them, every person who had disappointed them in the last six weeks. So even when I tried to steer the conversation a different direction, these people were very much set in their ways. It didn't work. They were focused on their negativity. And I found it so draining and honestly selfish of them to impose their negativity on me. If we allow a whiny, complaining attitude in our children, they will continue them into adulthood. Bad attitudes are self-centered and contagious. They negatively affect others and the task at hand, whereas the habit of cheerfulness is a light in the darkness. So these five laws provide a positive framework for how to live and thrive in relationships with other people but there's also a negative side to human interaction. As Nancy was saying, things that steal our joy. Not everyone is good company. We're all training our children to go out into the real world. We don't want them to be taken advantage of. We don't want them to miss the signs of bad character and get sucked into a bad friendship, or a bad marriage, or a hateful ideology. Finding a place in one's community is as much about serving and seeking good company as it is about being discerning and avoiding bad influences. So we train our children to watch people and consider their behavior, and then to judge what that means about the person's character. In Matthew 7:15 through 20, Jesus says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits." how many Americans actually have a Christian worldview. This is not a statement as to their salvation status, but based on a Barna research and research from ACFI, Natasha Crane found that only 6 to 10% of Americans in general have a Christian worldview. And within that, it's lower for millennials than it is for the older generations. She sums up her findings in the following. The big takeaway? those with a biblical worldview are not only a minority in America, they are a small minority. Furthermore, the American Worldview Inventory and Barna Research both show that those with a biblical worldview are a small minority even among Christians. Yes, seven of ten people may say they're a Christian, but that in no way reflects the relative rarity of the biblical worldview in America today our children need to learn to be discerning, to test everything. Even in the church, our children, and all of us, need to be on our toes. Just because people identify as Christians doesn't mean that they live like them. In part two of Roger's book, Live Not By Lies, which we read, he entitles the last section of each chapter, See, Judge, Act. In one of these sections, he says, A time of testing, even persecution is coming. Lukewarm or shallow Christians will not come through with their faith intact. We should see how many of the world's values have been absorbed into Christian life and practice. Then we must judge how the ways of the world and its demands conflict with what Christ requires of his disciples. We must teach our children to see, judge, and act to see how people behave, to judge whether or not their actions are right, and to act, to respond like a Christian in every situation. In this world, our children are sheep in the midst of wolves. As we teach them to be innocent as doves, we must not neglect our duty to teach them to be wise as serpents. So we have considered how the Scout can find joy through God in creation, joy in knowing and serving others by doing his duty. And now we consider the joy it brings to the Scout to do his duty well. A few months ago, I took my middle daughter, who's 11, uh, to a coffee shop with me to hang out. I was looking very cute in a dress, and I had some red sand grin platform clogs on. So as we walked back to the car, before I even realized what was happening, I was on the ground. <laughs> My adorable clogs had betrayed me, and all it took was a piece of mulch for me to step on, to land hard on one knee. So as I got up with wounded pride, because there were witnesses, (laughs) and the knee was a huge scrape that was beginning to drip blood, (laughs) we walked a few steps to our car, and my daughter pulled out from her pack a huge Band-Aid. A few weeks prior in scouting, we had talked about the things that we should have in our backpacks, just in case. (laughs) So she was ready. The scout's motto is, Be Prepared. She was prepared. (laughs) I'm going to tell you how Sir Robert baden Powell explained it. He said, Be prepared, which means you are always to be in a state of readiness in mind and body to do your duty. Be prepared in mind, by having disciplined yourself to be obedient to every order, and also by having thought out beforehand any accident or situation that might occur, so that you know the right thing to do at the right moment and are willing to do it. Be prepared in body by making yourself strong and active and able to do the right thing at the right moment and do it. Scouting activities are built around learning specific skills and many of them are skills that hardly anyone has anymore. Skills like finding direction with and without a compass, predicting the weather, knot tying, animal tracking. In my group, we've also learned how to build shelters, start fires, and walk silently in the woods. We use our senses to help us make observations, like noticing the sound of the footfall of each member of our family, or learning to pay attention to the different smells that are carried on the wind and to discern what they could mean and where they're coming from. It takes no special talent to learn these skills, only practice and commitment. In a recent episode of Jordan Peterson's new show on manhood called Dragons, Monsters, and Men, he says, get good at something, because to get good at something requires you to simultaneously practice many skills that will make you good at many things. And this is exactly what scouting offers. Every time that we meet, my group uh, meets twice a month, I teach one lesson, which is followed by an activity to allow the scouts some practice in their new skill. We talk about the purpose of having the skill and different scenarios where this skill might be useful. This practice gets the kids into the habit of thinking how they can be prepared. For example, we learn how to build shelters, and we go over a reason why we might need this. What if we get lost and have to spend a night out in the woods? We consider the location of our shelter. Where is a good spot that it's shielded from the wind, but not so out of the way that we wouldn't be noticed by the rescue helicopter that we expect because we told someone where we were going and when we were going to be back, and they should be missing us, and sending the rescue helicopter. And then we collect materials from our environment, being aware of possible dangers like poison ivy and snakes, and we construct a shelter to keep us warm and dry. Now, it's not likely that any of my scouts will be lost in the woods at night, partly because they know how to use their compasses and their mats, and they know how to look for signs of civilization. But if they did get lost overnight, they would know that they could survive No matter how unlikely that scenario is, that knowledge gives them confidence. Confidence in one's abilities are necessary to do one's duty. Why is it that in emergencies, people often panic? It's because they don't know what to do, and they're afraid. They're in a situation that they've never been in, they've never considered, and they lose their ability to think. As scouts discover that they are capable They look for opportunities to share their skills with others. They take pleasure, not only in practicing these skills, but in sharing and teaching what they've learned. The training we do in scouting, though it's often a type of play, it develops the habits of thinking clearly, problem solving, being flexible and resourceful so that our scouts can be servants, so that they can take their places in the world and know that what they do matters. What is my purpose? That is one of the most basic existential questions that people ask. The world tells us that our purpose is to serve ourselves. Have you guys heard of main character syndrome? Anybody? (laughs) Main character syndrome is when a person imagines herself to be the main character in a story, as if in a book or in a movie, and everyone else in her life is a secondary character, whose role is to support the story of the main character. So, main character syndrome is a form of narcissism. A study published in May of 2021 by Ohio State University academics defined narcissism as a person with entitled self-importance and that people with high levels of narcissism think they are special people who deserve special treatment. They have an exaggerated and inflated sense of their own importance. The study concluded that everyone is on the scale of narcissism. And within the Christian worldview, this actually makes sense. We are, by nature, selfish creatures. We are bent on self-destruction. We are dead in our transgressions. It is only when we realize that we are not our own that we can fulfill God's purpose for our lives, taking joy in how we can serve Him, letting our natural man go. In Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10, Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So as I said at the outset, scouting supports a Christian worldview, It opens our eyes to marvel at the world God has created. It helps us to see others as image bearers with eternal value, and it equips us to do the good works prepared for our lives. Scouting is a means to teaching our children how to live in obedience to God's word, and that is where joy is truly discovered. Thank you. About the author. Brittany McGann is a wildflower gardener and aspiring sewist. She homeschools her three children and serves as a church administrator. Brittany and her husband met in California, married in Las Vegas, and are now working together to restore native plants to their small parcel of land in North Carolina. Brittany has also authored Scouting for Wild Ones, a scouting curriculum for family adventures. If you have enjoyed this episode, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. Thank you for listening to the Charlotte Mason Poetry Podcast. We hope you enjoyed the program.